Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. We are in the fifth week of our journey through the Old Testament, where we're looking from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, and we're taking a good, hard look at some of the major themes and the major characters that are found in the pages of the Bible, and giving us this broad overview. Now, we've already covered some pretty important stuff, and in the early chapters, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the Bible really gives us broad brushstrokes of big stories and important people. We've learned so far about creation, how God made the world. We learned how sin came into the world through Adam and Eve. And then we learned that the state of the world got so corrupt, so evil, that God had Noah build an ark so he and his family could be saved, and he did what I would just consider a major reset on this whole humanity experience. And he wiped out the world. That's the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We're five weeks in, and some of you are doing the math and going, I hope you finish this before I die, right? So the pace picks up a little bit here, because from Genesis 12 on, the Bible has a very different perspective on things. The Bible primarily deals with one man, especially in the Old Testament. It deals with Abraham and his family. And it zeroes in on the generations who follow Abraham and God's incredible promises that he fulfills. When we first encounter Abraham, I just want to be clear, he is called Abram. That's his given name. I'm going to call him Abraham all the way through because when my eyes see Abram in the passage, I just read Abraham. That's the name that God gave to him later as a sign of the promises that were being fulfilled through him. The name literally, Abraham, means father of many nations. And that was the promise that God gave to him, that he would father many nations. And his life, his story, it marks the beginning of God's work to redeem mankind from sin that entered into this world through Adam and Eve. And his whole journey, Abraham's journey, begins when God speaks directly to him and says, go from your country your people, and your father's household to the land that I'm going to show you. And I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And to his credit, the Bible says that that Abraham went, just as the Lord had told him. And Lot, his nephew, went with him. And Abraham, Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now, to me, this this whole plan is filled with some challenges right from the get-go, right? Abraham has to make this unbelievably long journey. I mean, you can look on the map and see from Ur to Haran is way north and to the west, and he travels way south. And to the west again. Now, why does he go around that big brown spot? The Arabian Desert. Not a great idea any time of year to try to bring all of your stuff across the Arabian Desert. So he has to go around the desert. That area in the Middle East has always been volatile. I mean, overlay the map of the Middle East. and You see where Abraham traveled. He went through what we would know today as Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. That's not a great triptych, is it? I mean, 
So if I announced today that, you know, starting in June, we were going to take a bunch of people, we were going to recreate Abraham's trip, and we're just going to travel through all three of those countries, how many would sign up to go? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. Nobody wants to go. And it didn't get any better when he got to Canaan, what's later to be known as the Promised Land, because that land, he had no claim to any land. They were marching into a region that was already filled with dozens of clans who were fighting over territory. This is a crazy plan. God says, at 75 years old, Abraham, I'm going to take you there, and I'm going to birth a nation through you. He's 75, and Sarah is 65. That means they're going to conquer and occupy a yet-to-be-defined territory. God just says, trust me, I'll let you know when you get there. And oh, by the way, it's time for you two to start a family. I just, I find that hilarious. It's not high on the to-do list of any 75-year-old I've ever known to start a family. Can you imagine Abraham going home from this conversation, you know, picking up the social security checks in the mailbox and walking into Sarah and saying, a funny thing happened today. God said, we're supposed to start a family. I don't think that went well when he got home. It is a crazy, ridiculous journey. God is taking them on this long journey of geographic importance. They're going to take a long journey emotionally. They're going to take an even longer journey spiritually. And I think in Abraham's story, we hear the truth. We hear more about God's redeeming work, and it is more obvious in Abraham's life than it is anywhere else in Scripture as he repeatedly struggles to believe and obey God. So I love the fact that the Bible doesn't give us a whitewashed, sanitized version of people we would consider to be biblical heroes, you know? It tells it just like it was. It gives the unvarnished truth, even when that truth appears to be uncomfortable or unappealing. When lives are portrayed in Scripture, we get the whole story. And that's what's true about Abraham in the book of Genesis. From chapter, the end of chapter 11 all the way through the 50th chapter, the end of Genesis, his story is just filled with some weird stuff. You know, it's the kind of stuff you read and go, what in the world was he thinking? Why did he do that? I don't get why he did that. In fact, the fact that the Bible includes all that stuff actually helps me believe it. Because if you were trying to get us to believe in what Abraham did, you wouldn't tell all the messed up stuff that went on in his life. It was bad enough that one of the writers I was reading this week described Abraham and his family on this journey as the Babylonian hillbillies. I mean, they were just jacked up as a family in the stuff that they did. And the Bible, I think, tells us about these people because more than we'd like to admit, we're like them. And their experiences can help us understand ourselves and our relationship with God. I think every story that's in the Bible is there because it has something to teach us, and that's certainly true of Abraham's life. His story is important because it is brutally honest about the struggle it can be to trust God. Throughout most of his life, Abraham struggles to believe that God is actually going to make good on those promises we read out of chapter 12. 
And there's no way that I can cover all the twists and turns and the activities of Abraham and his family in 24 chapters of Genesis. But I just want us to look at a few examples of how Abraham struggled to believe God. Now, he starts off good. He makes this long journey. He just goes from Ur to Haran to Canaan. And as soon as he gets there into Canaan, God stops him, gives him a vision, speaks to him personally and says, this is the land I'm going to give to you and your descendants. I think that's cool. You know, not once, but twice now God has spoken to Abraham. How many times have you wished in your life that God would just speak to you? Just, you're struggling with a decision. You're struggling with some direction in your life. And God would just meet you in the morning over your cup of coffee and say, I got it all worked out. Here's what I want you to do. I'd love that. It's not been my experience, but I would love for that to happen. I'd like to think that if it happened, I could like mark that moment in history. Hang on to it. When I start to doubt, go, nope, God spoke. I remember it. It was over a hazelnut cream coffee, straight out of the Keurig in my kitchen. He spoke. I'm good. For Abraham, not how it worked out. God speaks and reassures him three more times in the book of Genesis. I've got you, God says. I'm with you. Hang in there. But the truth is, it takes a long time for God to deliver what he's promised. And Abraham has his doubts. For example, they get to Canaan. God says, this is the land I'm going to give you. And immediately, it's like a money pit. It goes into this drought and famine that wrecks the land. So much so that Abraham has to leave and go to Egypt, and they live for years as foreigners in Egypt. Weather changes, drought goes away, crops come back, Abraham and his family go back like a lot of people, and as soon as they get back, as soon as they get settled in, the Bible says, war broke out in the region. This is not going well for him. I don't think I want that piece of land if I'm Abraham. This is not some small border skirmish. This is actually four kings on one side aligned against five kings on the other in this regional war. And they don't have any part in it. In spite of that, some of his family gets captured, held hostage, prisoners by these warring factions. At this point, whether I've heard God's voice or not, I'm probably considering packing up and going back home. I can't say I blame Abraham for doubting. I think through my life, and there have been times when I wasn't really in danger like he was. And I knew what God wanted me to do, and I just doubted. But it's when you read on into Abraham's story, it's not the famine. It's not the constant danger that's got him doubting God. It's something much deeper, something more personal in his life. See, it's been 10 years since God gave that original promise. 10 years. And he and Abraham, he and Sarah are still childless. And if you've ever struggled with infertility, if you know someone has, you know what a painful struggle that is. To go through that for 10 years? They're now 85 and 75. And all the evidence seems to indicate they're going to remain childless. Time is not their friend. 
And so for Abraham and Sarah, their control issues kick in and they create a plan B. Plan B is they have this trusted servant whose name is Eliezer. Good dude. Been with him a long time. And they go to him and say, look, here's what we want to do. We want to adopt you as our son, which means you're going to take care of us in our old age. And when we're both gone, you get everything we've got. It's all yours. So Eliezer signs on. They sign on. But this isn't God's plan. And so God speaks to him again and reassures him. And as God is reassuring Abraham, he gets a little testy with God, a little edge to his comments. And he goes, he even argues with God that maybe this plan with Eliezer is the best plan that they have, the best hope they have of birthing a nation. And he says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? Like, seriously, God, you haven't delivered on the one thing that you said you were going to do. What can you give me? And in a tender moment, God reassures Abraham. He says, look, it's going to be a son born to you, not Eliezer, who carries on your legacy. And then to bolster his faith, God does something with Abraham that's truly amazing. He makes this covenant, an unbreakable covenant with Abraham. And it comes about in this goofy way that seems so foreign to us. God asks Abraham to gather several animals, kill the animals, cut them in half, but the two halves separated on a path. Right? Now you've got five animals lined up, separated on this path, and it makes this place you're supposed to walk through. What's up with that? Well, in the ancient world, this was a symbolic gesture. When two people went into a covenant with each other, a relational agreement, they would set animals like this and they would walk through the path as a way of signing that covenant, validating that covenant. In effect, what they were saying by walking through these animals is, if I break this covenant with you, may I die a death as horrible as these animals. Now, it's weird to us. It's painful enough to sign documents with an attorney present, let alone walk, you know, right between five dead animals and make a promise. But it was a very common thing in Abraham's day, in all the cultures. And so what God did was he entered Abraham's world and said, I'm going to give you something visual, something familiar, something you can cling to when doubt creeps in. And Genesis goes on to tell the beautiful story how Abraham gathers the animals, arranges everything, and then as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for in 400 years, I'm sorry, that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. What's he talking about? Yeah, God's telling Abraham about the slavery that's going to happen to God's people in Egypt. And he says, but I'll punish the nation as they serve as slaves. The plagues. And afterward, they'll come out with great possessions. Moses is going to lead them out of Egypt. God's laying out the whole plan. He says, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace 
and be buried at a good old age. So stop worrying about seeing this all come to pass, Abraham. You're going to be dead and gone by the time this all happens. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch representing God's presence appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. To help calm their fears and doubts, Abraham now gives, or God gives Abraham and Sarah the equivalent of a signed contract with explicit details to show how he's going to keep his promises. It's a beautiful scene. I would think, reading this for the first time, that really ought to solidify Abraham's faith. That really ought to help him trust God, right? Sadly, even that couldn't eliminate their fears and doubts. And this is where their control issues peak. Because I guess 10 years is long enough to wait. And if Eliezer's not going to be their heir, they have to come up with their own plan to conceive a son. And at Sarah's insistence, Sarah's insistence, Abraham has a child with Hagar, one of Sarah's servants. Now, again, that's just weird to me, right? That's not something I would recommend to couples who are having trouble. And at this point for me, it's hard for me to picture Abraham with everything that he's done and the stuff that I haven't even been able to talk about because of time. It's hard to picture Abraham as a spiritual role model, let alone the father of our faith. And far from helping, this plan when Ishmael was born only created more problems. When Hagar and Abraham's son was born, Sarah got mean and jealous. So much so that Hagar had to flee for her life. But God sent her back and she, Hagar, and Sarah and Abraham would live with that tension, live with that jealousy for another 15 years before Sarah finally has a child. Eventually, Isaac is born and he turns out to be her only child. At 90 years old, the promised child is born To Sarah and Abraham, she is 90, he is 100. And they've been waiting on this kid for 25 years. Look, I'll be honest. 25 years is a long time to wait, isn't it? Think about that when you're sitting in traffic trying to get out of church this morning. 25 years is a long time to wait. I get impatient sitting in traffic. The light turns green and I want them to go and I have to hold myself back from just tapping on the horn to motivate them to move, right? I know I'm impatient. This is kind of the ultimate for me that shows I'm impatient. I was thinking about this week. I catch myself getting frustrated with how long the microwave takes to reheat my lunch. I don't have a whole lot of patience. I could wait 25 years for a kid. That's crazy. But faith often demands of us a longer perspective. It demands of us to wait 25 years for a child. To wait 400 years 
for the nation to be built. Faith emphasizes that God is not bound by our timelines. From a human perspective, his ways can seem unpredictable and capricious, but he often leads us into places and circumstances that surprise us. And what I know to be true is that all during that time, God's character remains consistent, but his methods cannot be calculated as if he were some programmed machine. God works in his ways, in his time, to accomplish his purposes. And that makes us sometimes get really goofy, and we question, and we doubt. We can even wonder, did God really want me to do that? Is God even with me right now? So let's not judge Abraham too quickly. Because like Abraham, our hearts are prone to wonder if we don't see results immediately. And that was Abraham's story for most of his life. Sometimes he responded with incredible faith and sometimes he doubted God's promise and he responded with fear and self-protection. But as the story unfolds over these 40 chapters, we start to see that Abraham's faith is growing, that he is tested and he trusts God more, that he wanders less until near the end of his life he faces the greatest challenge of all. At that point, God says to him, take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I'll show you. This is one of those places in Scripture that I still don't completely understand. Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his child? I mean, 400 years later, God is going to give the law to Moses. One of the strict provisions in the law, because infant sacrifice, child sacrifice is rampant in this land, one of the provisions that the law makes is that you are not to sacrifice a human being. You are not to sacrifice a child, to try to manipulate God or appease God. That's not how this works. And it is so severe of a commandment that the law given to Moses says, if you do that, then it becomes the entire community's responsibility to circle around you and execute you. It's a capital offense. So why? Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? I mean, if this is just a simple test of faith, take Abraham up on Mount Moriah and have him jump off. Send him back to Egypt. Let him slide down one of the pyramids. Let him sacrifice himself. There's just something horribly wrong about this request to sacrifice your child. There is no way I could do that. So what does Abraham do? He spends the rest of the night after God appears to him. He spends the rest of the night getting everything ready for this trip. And he sets out early in the morning for a three-day journey with Isaac and two of his trusted servants. And he doesn't tell anyone 
what's about to happen. When they get close to Mount Moriah, Abraham looks at the two servants and says, I want you to wait here while Isaac and I complete the journey and the sacrifice. And he says to the servants, stay here with the donkey while I go, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship God and then we will come back to you. Isn't that interesting? It's just Abraham and Isaac going. We will come back to you. That one phrase gives us a glimmer of hope. It tells us something about Abraham's faith. A faith that God is going to provide a way out of this. He's not going to require Isaac's life. Over the years and over the trials, his faith has grown. In fact, the New Testament commends his faith in this. And it says, He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Because Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. That's a strong faith. And if you know the story, you know that Abraham and Isaac do go up the mountain. Abraham carries the flame and the knife. And Isaac, who as best as we can tell is about 12 years old at this point, carries all the wood that it's going to take to accomplish the sacrifice. And at some point, Isaac just asks the obvious, awkward question. And he says, you know what, Dad, I see the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them just finished the journey. Maybe in silence. They climbed the mountain together. They build the altar together. They unbundle the wood, pile it onto the altar to light the fire together. And then the moment that always catches me is that at that moment, Abraham took rope and bound Isaac's hands, bound his feet, picked up his son, and he laid him on that altar. And he raises that knife up, the Bible says. And I can just imagine him. It seemed like an eternity. It was a nanosecond. The knife was frozen in space. His muscles were tensing, ready to drive that knife through the heart of his son that he had waited 25 years to have, who he had loved for 12 years. And he's waiting to plunge the knife in. And at the last second, God says, Abraham, don't. I've provided a ram stuck in the thicket behind you for the sacrifice. God goes on to commend Abraham's amazing faith. He says, because you've obeyed me and you've not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you obeyed me. After a lifetime of doubting God, of taking his life and his challenges into his own hands, of coming up with plans B and C and D when God's plan A didn't seem to work out, somehow 
Abraham's faith has grown to this astounding place where right up to the moment where he raised the knife, he trusted that God would provide another way, that God would save his son. And he did. And ultimately, God fulfilled all of his promises to Abraham through Isaac. Abraham would get the legacy that God promised. Isaac's 12 grandsons were the men who formed the 12 tribes of Israel. These family clans that populated the land. 400 years later, they would emerge from slavery in Egypt as a nation more than a million people strong. And they would settle in, and they would claim the promised land as their rightful promise from God. Every one of God's promises to Abraham came true through the lives of these 12 men. Abraham's life teaches us what faith in God looks like. A real, honest faith. Abraham's faith was, throughout his life, this mixed bag of successes and struggles. He made some messes in his life. Some of those messes God redeemed. Some continued on to this day. Ishmael, his first son, was banished from Abraham's presence. And Ishmael went on to father 12 sons of his own who became the leaders of all the Arabic tribes. The Muslim faith traces its history back to Abraham through Ishmael. Abraham ran ahead of God and created some messes But he also had those amazing moments when his trust in God was incredibly strong. Times he followed God with reckless abandon. And I don't know about you, but I find my faith to be a lot like Abraham's. I'd love to believe that my faith, my growth chart, is like up and to the right. It's not. It's to the right, but it's up some days and down others. Sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I mess up. Sometimes it's easy. It feels natural to follow God's leading, to step out on faith, to do what He's asking me to do, to trust Him, to guide me, provide for me, and to walk the journey with Him. And other times, more than I'd like to admit, I struggle to obey and believe. Abraham's life is a model of real life for us why he's the father of our faith we have to work our faith out just like he did in our own impatient imperfect ways and abraham's journey gives us hope that as we walk through this life one faltering step at a time our faith can grow you know, i would hope that at the end of my life the end of your life somebody be able to put the capstone on our entire life, the way that James did that for Abraham. That they'd be able to look at our lives, look at my life, and say, you know what? He had his struggles, but he believed God. He believed all that God has promised. As crazy as it sounded, as improbable as it seemed, no matter how dark the night or how strong the fear or how long it took, he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. 
more than anything, when it's all said and done, I want to be called God's friend. 